afternoon, why don't we start out by singing twice, uh, Lord, I lift your name on high. All right? And then we'll have a prayer. Lord, I lift your name on high. Lord, I love to sing your praises. I'm so glad you're in my life. I'm so glad you came to save us. You came from heaven to earth to show the way. From the earth to the cross, my debt to pay. From the cross to the grave, from the grave to the sky. Lord, I lift your name on high. Lord, I lift your name on high. Lord, I love to sing your praises. I'm so glad you're in my life. I'm so glad you came to save us. You came from heaven to earth to show the way. From the earth to the cross, my debt to pay. From the cross to the grave, from the grave to the sky. Lord, I lift your name on high. We thank you, Father, that we can come today in the precious name of the Lord Jesus, whose name we lift on high. We thank you for all of the blessings, all of the treasures, all the deposits that have been given freely to us through Christ. That which we have seen and heard and touched and handled of the word of life. And today, as we join in this workshop together, we pray that you'll continue to help us understand how to guard the treasure by the Holy Spirit of the things that you have entrusted to us. We thank you, Lord, and we ask that you would, first of all, affect all of our wills to decide that we want to be here and that you would affect all of our hearts to agree that the Lord's word is precious to us. And then that we could all come humbly as learners and ask that the Holy Spirit would give us wisdom to live in these last days. So we commit ourselves to you today, thanking you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Now, this is the second day of a workshop, and we're talking about the matters in First and Second Timothy. I wonder before I begin, how many people are here for the first time today? So you weren't here yesterday. Oh. Okay, only half the group. Right. <laughs> well, uh, we are sharing. Uh, if we want to turn to our theme verse in Second Timothy, chapter one. And verse 14. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. Now, our brothers in the morning and in the evening are sharing the larger dimensions of this treasure and deposit. For not only has there been something deposited to you individually and to me as a Christian, but to the whole church, there is a great deposit entrusted to us. And our brothers have shared about the testimony of Jesus and about the matters of the faith, which we will take up 
here practically tomorrow, and also the glad tidings. These are great things given to us, and we are expected to be faithful in the stewardship of these things. Included in that stewardship is guarding them, lest they trickle away from our life. There's probably nothing more pathetic than a Christian who is not living in the good of the salvation and the Lord that they claim. These things, and I took this basic picture as a means to sort of be practical in our workshop that we actually need to be doing two things. One, we need to be fighting the good fight of faith. We need to be fighters for noble things. That phrase, the good fight, could be actually translated the noble agony, if you want to say. Because that word fight is actually the word agonizo. We get the word agony from it. To fight the good fight of faith. This is something especially young people should be very much uh, passionate about. We have a wonderful fight. There's so much fighting in this world that's so negative, so destructive. But the Lord actually encouraged us to be fighters for faith. And so yesterday we tried to look at Timothy as the example of this older brother Paul speaking to the younger brother Timothy about how to fight the fight of faith. We noticed that over 24 times in First and Second Timothy the word faith is used. And it just shows you the importance of faith exercised in our lives if we're to advance. As a matter of fact, I could say this. We receive the Lord Jesus by faith when we are saved. And then it begins a walk in our lives where we continue to obtain more and more of the treasury of Jesus by faith. Without faith, it's not only impossible to please God, but without faith, it's impossible to gain more of this deposit. We gain this deposit in the fight of faith by basically hearing from the Lord, obeying the Lord, receiving understanding from the Lord. The Lord gives us things, precious things, truths, and experiences. And all of this makes up a treasury that dwells within us. But there is an enemy who wants to shake that treasury out of you. He wants to come to us even as Esau was tempted and, and, and give us some kind of a bowl of soup if that's what it takes to uh, us to give up our birthright. Our treasure is precious, but you know, sometimes in our Christian life, when we're not living by the advance of faith, we begin to question the value of our treasure. We should never do that, but sometimes we do. And it's in that valley of temptation when the world, the flesh, and the devil is trying to erode this treasure from us that we have to be on our guard. Actually, yesterday, our major emphasis was that the first and precious guard that we have is our conscience. And we looked at a number of scriptures that shows 
that we cannot fight the good fight of faith unless we also keep a good conscience. That is our guard dog. And our conscience starts to bark when somebody's approaching. Whoa, 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 whoa. Trouble, trouble, trouble. Now, if your conscience is good, something will begin to bother you inside. You realize somebody is coming to rob, to kill, to steal. And you'll say, hold it. You wake up. You guard the treasure by the Holy Spirit. The enemy goes away. But, well, at least we should look at the scriptures. I'm sorry, there's many people who weren't here last time. But at least we'll look at a couple of scriptures on this line. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, we see the example of this. Timothy is a man of God, so Paul calls him. But even a man of God has to watch and guard his treasure. And so it is said here in chapter 1, verse 18... This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may fight the good fight. And notice these twofold things, keeping faith and the good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Now, the enemy wants to make a shipwreck of your faith. And all he has got to do is destroy your conscience to where you're no longer listening to the still, small voice. You're no longer sensing when something inside is, is saying, no, stop, check. But if you maintain the fight of faith and a good conscience then the Holy Spirit can guard that treasure. Dear brothers and sisters, don't deny your conscience barking. We find if we don't listen to our conscience, that still small voice gets smaller and smaller and smaller until we come to the point where we think that we call what is bad good. We also saw, as we studied this First Timothy, that not only is it possible for our conscience to be shipwrecked by disobedience to our conscience, but our conscience can also be seared like an iron on skin by religion. And in First Timothy chapter 4, if you look there, it says, In the last days... There will be men who will press you with religion and replace what should be that life of God in you, responding in obedience by your conscience and faith, and replace all that with don't do this, don't do that, don't do this. And sometimes we end up with a religion that sears our conscience where we don't know right from wrong. We're just obeying legalistic commands. Don't get married. Well, that sounds very religious, doesn't it? Most of the brothers here feel that's the best thing to do, right? Don't get married. Now, most of the sisters disagree with that. But uh, is that the basis of our life, somebody making these rules up? No, our lives are lived before God who speaks to us for us to respond by faith. 
who speaks to us and we listen to our conscience, always coming back to the Lord. So we're talking about fighting and guarding. There are some boxers who are brawlers. They have a boxing glove on both hands and they just go. I like some video games I see. It doesn't work like that. A good boxer just stands back and lets this guy go. But the guy doesn't have his guard up. He's just punching. No guard. And what happens when you're punching no guard? He comes right through, gives you an uppercut. Then he gives you a gut wrench. And you're down on the ground, knocked out. Fight. Guard. This is the way we're supposed to do. Okay, so this is what we looked at last time. Now, this time we want to look at another aspect. And for that, we turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verses 12 through 14 and verses 20 through 21. And let's notice again the fight and the guard. Chapter 6, verse 12. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. And you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Then let's look down at the fight. Fight the good fight of faith. Now let's look at verse 20 and 21. O Timothy, guard. It's the same word as in 2 Timothy 1.14. Guard what has been entrusted to you. Virtually the same as 2 Timothy 1.14. Guard what has been entrusted to you. Watch out now. Avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. Fighting, guarding. Fight the good fight of faith. Now, <clears throat> let's look at one more passage. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, now you know there were several years between the two books. But in 2 Timothy chapter 3, we just need to see a context that our brother Timothy is supposed to fight the good fight of faith in. Beginning in chapter 3, verse 1. Realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. Now, Timothy is already living 
at the beginning of such a time. It's called the last times, the last days. And the tragic picture that is spoken of here is what happens when the world has completely influenced the church. These are people in the church. These disobedient ones. These haters of God. These seekers of self. All of these things we heard. These are Christians who have, who have been completely conformed into this world. Because these are simply the attitudes the world has always had. The tragedy is the church comes to this place. Where, where believers are insolent, rebellious, disrespectful. Do you know that should never be in the house of God? But when the world comes in, and rather than not being conformed to this world, our minds become worldly, this is the condition of the church. But Timothy still needs to fight the good fight of faith. How do you do that in such an age when things look so bad? How do we guard this treasure? Can you overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil? Is it possible? Well, if we don't see the, a key that lies in this passage, I fear the answer for most is no. The world, the flesh, and the devil offers too much and tempts and leads us away and we lose our treasure and our testimony. But there is a way to overcome. And for that, we must look again at that chapter 6 and verse 12. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 12. And I just want to share this one key thought that is the thought for the day. When Paul exhorts Timothy once again, this being the second time in his epistles, to fight the good fight of faith, notice what he says immediately afterwards, because this adds definition to what it means to fight the good fight of faith. Well, here is one aspect of that fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and to which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Now, what is he talking about there? Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Now, some Bible interpreters interpret this as being run after eternal life, the goal of your life. And, of course, this is true. We will have this eternal life fully expressed in our lives one day. But from the moment we become Christians, we have already received eternal life. But now we need to, in an act of faith, take hold of this life to which we are called. Christians tend to be passive until desperation makes them realize they cannot overcome by their own life. 
but they can live victoriously by the life of another. And who am I talking about there? You have been given, listen to this treasure, ladies and gentlemen. You have been given the very life of the Lord Jesus within you by the Holy Spirit. Some people lay hold of that life, depend upon that life, live out of that life, and thus they fight the good fight of faith, no matter what the condition of the church may be in, no matter what situation they're in. They live by the life of another. This is how we overcome. This eternal life is a present possession. This is eternal zoe, this wonderful Greek word. It means the heavenly life. We're to live on earth by a heavenly life. We have a new resource as Christians. We don't have to struggle and try as people in this world do who try to be good. But their lives are continually on a downward trend. But we live by a heavenly life. And it's been given to us. And it proves a treasure to those who lay hold of it. We often quote that wonderful scripture from Galatians 2.20. I think all of you probably know this verse, right? I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I. But Christ lives in me. It is the life. And the life I now live. I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. This becomes a, a crucial understanding. And for a young person, especially those who are Christians, and they want to be pleasing to the Lord, but they continually find themselves failing because of the temptations of this world. Do you know how far you have to go to find victory? As close as your heart. If you understand this life is there and lives inside, you lay hold of this life. Oh, Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold of that life to which you were called. When we live by the life of the Lord coming through us, coming even as streams of living water, it leads us in service of the Lord. It leads us in the ventures of our life. It leads us in blessings. It leads us through trials. Oh, that life is a powerful life. It's an inexhaustible life, but it needs to be laid hold of by faith. And so Timothy is being exhorted by his precious brother in the Lord. And I want to talk about this Zoe life for just a minute. And I want to introduce it by saying that to live by this faith, taking hold of this life, this Zoe life is a lost treasure in the church. People don't know how to live by that life. John the Apostle was a young man when Jesus was on this earth. And he lived many years as a faithful apostle, but it's strange that he was finally prevailed upon by the Lord to write 
near the end of his life. And why was it that John was burdened to write his gospel and his epistles and the book of Revelation near the end of his life? Why was this necessary? Because the church had forgotten this treasure of Zoe. Through history, the church had developed, become organized. Uh, its knowledge had developed into doctrines. Its servants had developed into offices. And so there were apostles and there were pastors and there were various things like that. But in the midst of the living of the Christian life, and it was a busy time, and it was a blessed time. But in the midst of it, the people were forgetting that their life was to, to be lived by the life of another. And so the church was in decline. Now, when John wrote his gospel, you know that in John chapter 20, he tells the purpose of writing his gospel. I write these things that you might believe. And having believed, you might have zoe. In his name. So there was a gospel purpose in his gospel of John. But there was also a purpose for Christians who would receive and read the gospel of John. And what was that? He was trying to show Christians that Jesus had come to give them Zoe and to give it to them abundantly. He shared the secret of Jesus' life. When you saw Jesus doing the miracles and speaking with wisdom, you always scratch your head and say, how can he do that? How can he be so smart? But in the Gospel of John, John gives us the secret. Jesus did nothing out of his own life. He depended on his relationship to his Heavenly Father and did the things the Father showed him to do and spoke the things the Father spoke to him about. He lived by the life of another. And John shows us a picture of Jesus living by the life of another. And he's saying, Christians, Christians, don't forget. It's not the bread. It's the bread of heaven. You need to see the life is the key to our lives. And when we turn to 1 John, if you'll just look at the beginning there as an example. What is his burden as he's writing to these dear saints? What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifest. And we've seen and testified and proclaimed to you the eternal Zoe, which was with the Father and manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we know from the Gospel of John, as well as his epistles, that he draws the saints back into a recovery of what it means to abide in Christ and Christ to abide in us. This is the way of heavenly life. This is the way of 
abundant life. Abide in me and I in you is what Jesus said. And John reminds the saints of that. And here in 1 John, he says, I've come to tell you about the life. We touched it. We heard it. We saw it. Now we pass it along. And now we live in the good of it. And our joy is made full in this life with the Father and with the Son. If the believer does not abide in Christ, you'll lose your treasure. If the church does not live by the life of Jesus, it loses its testimony. (laughs) What is the testimony of Jesus in the church? It's this. When the church gathers together, you can see Jesus there. But if he's not there, but you're hearing some human, you know, saying, I'd like to talk this morning about the nasal passages of the ostrich. Now, please, it's got nothing to do with the life of Jesus. Or you sing songs, but it has no life. When we all get to heaven, what a day. Worshiping without the life, preaching without the life. And praying without the life. Ay, ay, ay. Have you ever heard prayers without the life? Ay, ay, ay. You can just feel the nails being driven into the coffin of that prayer meeting. As a person prays on and on and on. And you just say, oh Lord, just give us a breath of life. Just a, <coughs> just a cough, something. How has the church come to this deadliness? And so that's why in the book of Revelation, the precious Lord Jesus comes down and looks over his churches. And what is he looking for? He's looking for himself. You know, he's looking for the bride to start looking like him. I gave you my life. Now, have you used it? He looks in every church to see. Are you living by my life? Do you love me? Heart, soul, mind and strength still? This is the issue. Of the life. This is the treasure. So let me tell you the treasure. Here's a treasure worth guarding. You have his life within you. Now here's what you got to do with it. Or you can suffer loss. By faith, take hold of it. Speak to the Lord. You know, whenever I give a meeting like this... There's always like a line of 22 people who didn't understand what I was saying. And, and this is understandable. I, I, I know I, I lack clarity. But actually, most of the people who come up have this question. Well, how do I know the will of God about such and such? And here, I, I, I don't know. Maybe you think I'm being mean. But my response is always to invite you to the greatest dialogue in In your life, talk to the Lord. Ask Him the questions. Wrestle with the Lord. Find out. He's wanting to show you His will, but He wants you to believe that He'll speak to you. That's part of what it means to take hold of the life. If you talk to the Lord, He'll speak back to you. And I mean talk to Him in plain English. You don't have to go wombling off into King James English. You don't have to get all sort of change your voice. Just talk to him normal. 
And he will begin to direct you. Ah, yes, I forgot. You also have to be a student of the Word. But we'll look at that in a couple of minutes. Okay, so now, that's a treasure you have within you. Guard it. If you have this treasure and you know you have this treasure, you can overcome. Because, what does the Bible say? How, does, how do we overcome? Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. That's how wonderful a treasure we have. Oh, dear, say, take hold of it. You'll be a giant in the faith. If you just take hold of that life and begin to understand and wrestle to understand how to live in this kind of wonderful way. So throughout church history, we have seen the church, as our brother Lance shared even this morning, begin with great life and great refreshing rivers of living water pouring out. And then with time, there's an ebbing and there's a need for a recovery of what is it always? When we say the Lord's recovery, what are we really talking about for the church? It's a recovery of life. Life. It's as if we, the church is, is an old wineskin. Just dry and crackly. But if the Lord pours out his life, then there's a whole new flow of life and even sometimes a new wineskin. How the Lord wants to recover. But the whole issue is life. Now, Paul is sharing this with Timothy on a very practical level as well. This is not just something as a general ideal. He's telling Timothy that, he, that Paul is about to leave this planet. And that young Timothy needs to learn how to not be so dependent upon Paul, but to take hold of that life and to live by the strength of God. And so this is the issues we have before us. What is that life to which Timothy is called? Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the life to which you were called. It's different for everybody. Everybody receives a different uh, grace and the different gifts. We see Timothy here. We noticed last time, but let's look again. In 1 Timothy chapter 4. Do not neglect this. Uh, verse 14. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Timothy has heard something about his calling and ministry. But it's no good just to receive prophecy from some people. A commitment service, if you want to say, as a, a young Timothy obviously showed he had gift and uh, ability and, the, and the, the church got together and laid hands on Timothy and prayed for him that the Lord would give him strength to serve and faithfulness. But now as Paul's about to leave, he's reminding Timothy of these things. Don't neglect that. Remember it. 
And so we find there in chapter 6 that this is what is somewhat being talked about in verse uh, chapter 6 and verse 12, where it says, Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Now, what's that about? Probably, I mean, we don't know. Uh, the short answer is we don't know. But it probably means one of two things. Either it was the confession that young Timothy made at the time of his baptism, where many people would, would just declare their uh, love for the Lord, his lordship in their lives, and even their desire to serve him. And perhaps Timothy at his baptism made some good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Others believe it was at this time where he was set aside as a servant of the Lord to preach the word, to shepherd the sheep. And during this time, Timothy made a confession that he loved the Lord with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength and wanted to serve him because he loved him. He made a good confession. Now, it's one thing to have made the good confession two years ago, five years ago. How many years ago were you baptized? Did you make a good confession? <laughs> in Flushing, where I, where I meet, uh, we have a baptism every once in a while. We have 12 people get baptized, and, and some people make a very clear confession. I'm going to live for the Lord. And some people, of course, they're usually young. They kind of get up and say, uh, well, that is to say, uh, I love God. I don't know. But, but Timothy must have made a pretty strong confession. And Paul even reminds him there in verse 13. I charge you in the presence of God who gives Zoe. Again, reminding him that it's God who gives him that life. And of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate. Now, what is the good confession that Jesus made before Pontius Pilate? Well, you remember when he was standing there and Pontius Pilate was asking him questions and everything. This is what I think. I mean, it's the whole thing that Jesus did. It was as he stood before Pontius Pilate, Pontius Pilate could see. That he was the anointed Messiah of the Father. It was evident in his life. But within that good confession, here's what Jesus said. My kingdom is not of this world. And I think Timothy in some way made this same confession. I serve the kingdom of God. My kingdom is not of this world. Now, why do I say that? Because if you look at the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you'll see that it has to do with riches, wealth, and materialism. Let's look at it just for a second. I think you'll see. <clears throat> uh, in uh, chapter 6, verse 10, For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So we see that you can lose your treasure by wandering away from the faith because you're pursuing wealth. But flee from these things, you man of God. Verse 11. 
and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. You also need to be content and let your testimony be, the Lord is my portion and my inheritance. I am content. You see, so there's a context there where Timothy needs to take hold of the life that is in the Lord and make the good confession. I live for the Lord, not for earthly treasures. I live for the treasure of his life that lives within. So you see, Timothy is making a good confession. Now he needs to guard this treasure, this life within him. Now I just ask you, do you live by this life? Are you aware of this treasure? Is it of value to you? Some, some of you are still young enough to where you're protected by home and environment and even the church. But sooner or later, you'll be faced with this decision. Do you believe the life within you? Or do you believe the life that presents itself around you? Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the life to which you were called. This is the command of uh, Paul to Timothy. Now, let's look uh, at this matter of life as the basis of our walk and our service, personally speaking. Let's talk about this life as the basis of our life and service. Now, you know, uh, I went through some training for ministry. And as I went through the training, I, uh, all of the books regarding how to be a minister all have to do with how to. How to plant a church. How to do pastoral counseling. How to build a building. How to get more money. How, what method uh, of preaching is best? What method of worship is best? What method of Sunday school is best? These are the things you learn. But I went through four years of school training for the ministry, and I never heard somebody tell me what the most important aspect is of learning how to uh, live and serve God, and it's this. The life of Jesus in you needs to build character in your life. The term that Paul uses, as it is translated in New American Standard anyway, is this term, godliness. And Paul emphasizes godliness to Timothy above Above the outward ministry. Now, for sure, Timothy had outward ministry and many things to do. To read the scriptures, to do the work of an evangelist, to correct those sheep who have gone astray. There was much to be done in terms of ministry. But, the, but Paul put an emphasis upon Timothy being careful to guard, to guard that life. Now, the life of Jesus that lives within you, when it's expressed internally, is called godliness or piety, some translations call it. Uh, 
How does that life manifest itself? If the life of Jesus is in you and you take hold of that life, it manifests itself in godliness. And Paul is burdened to emphasize the importance of this godliness as essential to ministry and to the life of the whole church. So whether he's talking about the women, he talks about them being godly. And when he talks about the elders, he says they need to be godly. When he talks about deacons, he says they need to be godly. When he talks about widows, he says they need to be godly. Godliness is the outworking of that life within as it's expressed in your personal life. Now, that life expressed outwardly in ministry is called ministry. But inwardly, and as it's expressed in your daily life, it's called godliness. It's a very important word. It's used ten times here in, the, in First and Second Timothy. Well, let's, uh, let's look at it. Let's look at just a few verses here. Uh, as an example, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, as Paul is talking about the church, by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Paul is talking about something very deep. There's many ways of interpreting this passage, but I want to just come right across with a very simple interpretation. Why is the mystery of godliness so great? Because religion interprets godliness as a human effort to be pious, to be holy, you know, to sit on spikes and uh, not to breathe on Thursdays and uh, only to wear white smocks and such things like this. This is the usual worldly form of religion. But the mystery of godliness is this, that even as Christ was resurrected, and seen in glory. So the Lord takes the Christian's life. And when it's lived by the life of Christ, there's a godliness about you that isn't made up, forced, human effort. There's a true piety about you. It's not made up. It's not earning credits. It comes out of a life that's hard to explain. And when we live in true godliness, the world cannot explain the mystery. And really, neither can we. But godliness is so vital to the Christian's life. Let's look at some other passages in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. That have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for the things, all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. 
It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance, for it is for this that we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all the world, especially believers. Exercise yourself for godliness. Now, okay, now you notice in this passage, it says, if you go to the gym, it's okay. In New York, it costs $85 a month. So if you pay your money, you should probably go to the gym. It's a good idea. And believe it or not, even I go to the gym twice, three times a week. Can you believe that? Well, I'm not going to waste that money. But you know what? How many of you who go to the gym, and I can see by the buff dudes we got in this room, that there are some regular gym visitors... My question to you is, do you spend as much time exercising godliness as you do exercising your body? Do you? Well, how do you exercise yourself unto godliness? What are the barbells or the universals that you use? What machinery brings you to godliness? Well, let's look at some of the machinery. It's easy to see in First Timothy, I'll mention just a few here. Um, chapter Second uh, Timothy, chapter two, verse fifteen. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. <laughs> but verse sixteen, be on your guard. Avoid worldly and empty chatter. It only leads to further ungodliness. Oh, the ungodliness that has come to us because of cell phones. Chatter, 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 chatter. Exercise yourself unto godliness. Well, here you go. Study. Really learn the Word of God. Now, if you try to do that by your own life, I'm sad to say, you'll be a terrible failure. Maybe you've read a book that says, okay, you should get up 6 o'clock in the morning, splash cold water in your face, open up the Bible, read your devotion, have a prayer, and then get on to school. You say, amen, praise God. You make the commitment in July, it's still firm halfway through August, because of course it's still summer vacation. September comes along, hmm, six o'clock. Fortunately, you have what? Snooze. Twenty minutes later, snooze. And next thing you know, oh, no matter how hard you try, eventually you get up. You have to be downstairs at seven, so you get up at seven minutes to seven. You open a word, and it says, "Then the Lord said, Thank you, Lord, for speaking.'" And you quick, get dressed, go downstairs, and you're off to school. Now, you, you know, I would rather see you wrestle with the Lord about this and say, you know what, Lord, my track record isn't really that good. I want to be disciplined on this thing. But you know what, unless, unless I can take hold of your life within me to give me grace to do it, I think I'll be a failure. And you know, if you'll be faithful to the Lord, He will awake you. And he will encourage you because here's what happens. 
When you start just reading a little piece of the scriptures in the morning and praying, and you do it with a sincere heart, you don't have to, you know, in New York, we're trying to read the whole Bible in a year, which is always a good thing. But at six o'clock in the morning it can be a little tough. You know what I'm saying? The, 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 the three chapters of a list of names and chronicles, they kind of slip by. At six o'clock in the morning. But, but anyway, if you have a little thing, this is what I, I'm, I recommend. Open your Bible to a place that you were at last time, meaning yesterday morning. And now just read four or five verses and have a dialogue with the Lord. Even though you say, oh, Lord, you're so precious and merciful, just like I read here. And I take this mercy from today. Or you say, Lord, what does this mean? Would you show me through the day what this means? If you have a dialogue with the Word, just a little bit like that, and then have a prayer and you consecrate yourself to the Lord for the day, you'll find that this dialogue continues. And you'll be interested tomorrow because maybe the Lord says, tune in tomorrow and you'll find out the answer to your question. So you tune in tomorrow with expectancy. But you see, if you allow the Lord to lead you, you know, you're being yoked up with the Lord and he's willing to show you how to do this. He's not really at all uh, the religious, uh, hard driving uh, monk that you might think he is. You know, people say, well, if I do my devotions in the morning, it's going to be like I'm in the Franciscan order of men. I have to get up and sit around, go home, home, sing songs, take two and a half hours. I can't just spend two and a half hours. The Lord is not a monk. And he will lead you. But you need to study the word. Well, let's look at another um, piece of advice here to, to take hold of God's life. Um, in chapter, 2 Timothy chapter 2. Verses 22-23. Notice the fight. Notice the guard. Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord with a pure heart. But refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they only pro produce quarrels. Here again we see that the exercise of godliness involves positive action. And here is a positive action to take. Pursue righteousness, faith, and these things with those who call on the Lord with a pure heart. That'll keep you out of a lot of trouble. But then here's the guard duty. Flee youthful lusts. Now, you know, today there's stuff so near on the computer it's impossible. Actually, it's impossible to come off clean if you live a life in front of a computer. You just click on things. The next thing you know, you, you know, what's, what's this? Who sent me this message? Have you ever made a covenant with your eyes? Do you know what that is? There's a little verse in Job chapter 31. I'd like to recommend that you be realistic in your life is touching lusts and all the sexuality that just so uh, infiltrates all aspects of our life and mass media and everything. In Job 31.1, as he's stating his case, he, there's a beautiful verse that I think all young people should really memorize and take to heart, but more importantly, to do before the Lord. 
Job says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? Uh, It's another translation that actually makes that a little bit more accurate as to the Hebrew when it says, I've made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I fix my gaze at a virgin? Now, if I could just interpret that for you and for me. It means that it's impossible for our eyes not to see things today that are pornographic or certainly indecent or immodest. It's impossible. But can you make a covenant with the Lord that I may see something like that? But I'm not going to I'm not going to fix my gaze on that as to lust, as to desire. Lord, my eyes are for you. And if I see something, either accidentally or in some foolish way, and I see something, Lord, I'm not going to fix my eyes. Are you willing to say that? I'm afraid many young people are being done in by pornography. And you need to make a covenant. I'm not going to those sites. It's up to you. But if we're pursuing that life within to be expressed, it's expressed in godliness and piety. And the problem with godliness is this. Godliness is sensitive. And brutal things from the outside hurt it. That's primarily why, we'll take it up tomorrow, but that's primarily why Paul says, have nothing to do with this chatter and these arguments and these philosophies and all of that stuff. You know why? It just takes that peace out of your soul. And you need to guard your heart from these things. Just get in there and take away the peace. Because you've known after you've seen something improper on the Internet... You know, you actually should stop and say, Lord, cleanse my eyes so that I can see you. Forgive me, Lord, for straying to that uh, website or whatever it is. Don't let that stay in your mind. It becomes a little thing the enemy puts inside of you. And he starts to use and build and pervert and twist. Don't allow him that privilege. You have to fight the good fight of faith. And in taking hold, you need to flee as the guard duty, as well as pursuing righteousness with those who love the Lord. So again, this is a very practical thing here. And we noticed in uh, chapter 1 and verse 6, we don't need to go into it again. Well, we should because you see godliness. In chapter one, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, Verses uh, well, we should just read the whole section here, the little section beginning in verse three, chapter six, verse three. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, this is what we want. He is conceited and understands nothing. 
but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. Godliness pursues contentment. Our souls, our flesh sometimes pursues argument. <laughs> Which way are we going to go? And here, this is the context of materialism. Are you a striver for wealth or are you a striver for contentment? You know, the Lord will probably, well, God willing, we don't know, but many of you will be blessed. You'll have a good job and uh, make some good money. And may the Lord bless you with that. And he's longing for saints who can live godly lives and even be good stewards. There's nothing wrong with being blessed by the Lord with, with means. But it's what you're pursuing that matters to the Lord. Are you pursuing a life of godliness with contentment? Or are you letting that godly pursuit be completely distracted by materialistic gain and the, and the excitement of always checking out your stocks and doing this and that and getting completely distracted from the real goal of life? Godliness. Godliness. The Lord wants to give us these things. Let's just look at one more and then... Uh, Oh, yeah, uh, sorry, I want to look at two more. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5. Can there be a wrong kind of godliness? <laughs> well, here's one. Here was part of the passage we shared earlier about the evil times that come to the church where people are lovers of self and lovers of money and all this. And you notice that little phrase that says this. Verse 5, holding a, a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Now, you know, it can be subtle sometimes. Even to pursue godliness by your own effort and not by the life of the Lord within becomes religion. Here these people are godly. What does that mean? They're still pious. Oh, they love to hear the old tunes. They love to think about the Word. They don't study the Word, but they like to think about it. Uh, they have many wonderful notions about how wonderful the Lord is. They have a, a sense of sort of piety about them, but it doesn't have any power. It's not born out of the life of God. It's not a, a godliness with power. It's a godliness of form. And there's some people who are kind of religious by nature. I remember uh, years ago when I first came up to New York after, uh, uh, well, when I moved up to New York in the, in the 1970s, many people in the church in those days were converted Catholics, and many of them were Italian in background. Now, uh, forgive me if somebody here is Italian, but uh, one thing about Italians, the real Sicilian Italians, is they come, some of them, from a very religious background. I mean, everything is always, hey, 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 hey. and we got to do this and this, and I go to church every day. And I, Actually, I live just two blocks away from this kind of an Italian church in New York City, and people go there every day, every day. They're so godly uh, in form. 
but where's that life? The real life of transformed life and piety in our lives. Huh? Okay, there's one more. And then I'll let you go. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Let's just settle on this matter and understand it. 2 Timothy 3.12 Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. There's something about godliness that arouses the hostility of others. And you notice it says there literally, indeed, all who desire godly zoe, real godliness, in Christ Jesus, will be persecuted. God wants us to live by his life, to take hold of that life, and to have it express itself in these pious disciplines of prayer, study of the word, pursuit of righteousness, etc., etc. There's many things we could talk about there. But all of that wonderful piety in our life has a price to it. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And I hope you're willing to pay that price for the treasure you have within. The world, there is tribulation. But be of good cheer, the Lord says, I've overcome the world. There's wonderful treasure and peace and consolation in living a godly life even fellowship with our precious Lord Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. It's worth every penny of the price. But there is a price. And if you're willing to pay that price and live godly in this world, God bless you. God can make and do great things through you. It's amazing, really, what God can do with a godly sister, a godly brother. Once you determine to just come out in the open and live as the Lord is pleased that you live, you bear great influence on your very peers around you. You remember D.L. Moody was the man who made famous the phrase, it has yet to be seen what God can do with a man who, comple who completely commits his life to him. Are you such a man? And John Wesley, in the midst of his reviving of England, said, Just give me a hundred men who love the Lord and are afraid of nothing but sin. And I'll move the world. It's an amazing statement. In these last days, I pray, and for young people I pray, Especially that you would live godly lives. Be filled with the Spirit, as our brother shared this morning. And live those godly lives that remains in touch with the prize who lives within. Oh, for you, for people to look at you and say, there's somebody who abides in Christ and Christ abides in them. What a tremendous, tremendous testimony that is in these days. I hope you'll consider being faithful in this matter. There's a great treasure within. A great treasure within. It's worth the fight. It's worth the guard. If you're willing to do it,
the treasure grows and becomes more precious. This is what we have offered to us by the word of God today. Let's pray as we think about these things. Our Father, we come to you and all we can do is thank you for the treasure that dwells within. We thank you that by grace you poured out the Holy Spirit into our lives and even now are in the process of reproducing our King and great Savior, Jesus Christ, in our lives. What a godly transaction this is. And we want to guard the process asking that the Holy Spirit even would keep the words that we've spoken today and that you would give hearts to your young people and to all who are in earshot of this word to pursue godliness and exercise ourselves in such a way as to find ourselves approved of God in every area of our life. We give you thanks, Lord, for the great treasure we have and we would lay hold of the life that is in Christ Jesus as our most precious possession. Oh, if it is said that this life is the lost treasure of the church, may we be able to say, by the grace of God, the life has become the recovered treasure of the church. Fill us with rivers of living water that we might live according to this godly life We thank you and praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.